Well, welcome to our ninth session. We're moving along. We only have 14 sessions, so after today we'll have five more weeks. And before we get into the lecture today, Dane, do you want to open for us in a word of prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you... uh, took the time to uh, and the effort to communicate it to us in such a clear and studyable way. We ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in looking at it, that it leads us into all truth, that we can better understand who you are, your love towards us, and our responsibility uh, in handling accurately that word. I ask uh, these things in your name, Lord. In your name, amen. I appreciate that prayer. We do, in fact, want to be diligent and careful with God's word. One thing that I did not mention last time, and I'd like to kind of expand a little bit on what we talked about in terms of a word study. So let me give a quick, brief review on that, and then I'll explain One thing that I actually forgot last time, so we're still in the exegetical portion, Bible study methods portion of the course, the practical portion, and I hope it's the most uh, blessing in terms of your personal experience as well, getting into the Word and seeing some results. I consider it kind of the more fun part rather than just the hermeneutics portion, which is okay. I like it, but it doesn't get you into the text as directly as uh, the portion that we're in right now. So we'll continue with our exegetical process. We spent some time dealing with observation, what is in the text itself. And the better the observations that you make, the more accurate will be the conclusions that you come to. Those conclusions concerning the meaning we call interpretation. So after you make adequate observations, now you want to probe what do these words mean? What do these sentences communicate? What is the original author trying to communicate to us, not only the original author, but us several hundred years later. So we began looking at interpretation, that's seeking the author's intended meaning. That's the bottom line of everything that we are attempting to do in this course. And we started with some background in an area that you won't be able to do too much, but you need to establish the text, in other words, the original text, because we have only copies. We don't have what Paul actually penned, but we have copies of what he penned. And that's the same for Old Testament authors as well, Moses, Isaiah, etc., as well as the rest of the New Testament, Luke, Mark, Peter, whoever the case may be. So we looked at the the biblical text. I gave you what textual critics do and work that you would do if you did Greek exegesis in its technical sense. 
utilizing the original languages. We spend all of our time talking about word studies. So we want to understand the meaning of particular words. What do those words mean? I gave you a process by which you can find those words in the scriptures. There's a variety of ways, but the basic tool is a concordance, whether it be the traditional concordances or the more modern uh, electronic versions of word searches. So we spent all of our time looking at word studies. We concluded with some examples. And then your assignment dealt with word studies. One thing that I should have mentioned concerning word studies, once you've established the range of meaning and you have a good handle on how that word is used in the Bible, and if you limit it to the New Testament, then how you understand the word from the New Testament, if it's a theological word, that will also be the basis or the foundation for any theological studies that you do. In fact, right from your range of meaning study, if you pulled out all those verses, like some of you did, and put them in the assignment, then now you can draw from them and develop a biblical theology relating to that word. And sometimes a word will express theological ideas. And that word study, now you have all of the verses that you need to construct a theological study relating to that particular word. Now, in some cases, you may need to look up some other words related to that doctrine or that theological idea. But uh, now you already have the foundation to do that. So it's just a matter of extending the work that you've already done to come up with a theological study. So the word study itself is designed to arrive at the author's intended meaning for a particular word in a particular context. But you also have developed how that word is used in all of its senses in the various places that you can find it in the New Testament. And taking it the next step, now you can develop a theological study from that foundation. And I should have mentioned that last time, but I must have forgotten about it. A third very, very major area, and just as important as word studies, is structural analysis. And what we mean by structural analysis, I introduced that concept to you when we talked about observation. What is structure? Structure is the relationship of things in liter. If you're dealing with language, relationships within language. So anytime you have two of anything in language, you have structure, a relationship between those two items, whatever they may be, words or whatever, phrases. So now ideas are conveyed, usually in a series of words. And by definition, a sentence is a unit of or a 
complete idea, a sentence by definition is a complete idea, it has a subject, it has a verb, and then it has supporting words. So structural analysis is an attempt to see how all those parts work together to communicate in that sentence that idea or that thought. So when we talk about structural analysis, it is predominantly grammatical, although you extend it beyond the sentence when you're trying to put together all of the paragraphs. But most of the discussion that we'll talk about will be primarily grammatical analysis today. So let's talk something of it. The essence of it is we are attempting to understand what God has put down in his words. And by understanding that, we want to think his thoughts after him. And if we can capture the essence of what's communicated by any given author, we are essentially thinking God's thoughts after him. And I think that's what he desires to do. He desires to communicate. And when we can develop the sequence of thoughts, the ideas that are presented, then I think we are actually arriving at what God has intended to do in, in giving us his word, in communicating to us, we are thinking his thoughts. There's three basic ways of analyzing grammar. I, actually, there may be others, but the three that I want to present are commonly used. I gave you a brief introduction last time to what I describe as basic analysis. And when we speak of basic analysis, I believe we're getting at the essence or the heart of a, of a sentence. And if you can do basic analysis, you will essentially arrive, I believe, at about 85 to 90 percent of the the grammatical analysis of that sentence. So this is not only basic and foundational to all the other, the other two methods that I'll give to you, but if this is all that you can do based on your spiritual growth and where you're at in terms of your Bible study, uh, then you have arrived at essentially the heart of any given sentence. And it's not difficult unless you're just totally unable to deal with the grammar than most people, and I'm confident that all of you will be able to do basic analysis. There's only four steps in it. I reviewed them quickly last time, so we'll develop it a little bit more today, and I'll give you an example of basic analysis. The first one, every one of you can do, I'm sure, if you can read is to isolate a sentence, because we're going to deal with a sentence, so you're not wanting to take a look at a large portion necessarily, but you want to make sure that you know where the sentence begins and where the sentence ends. This is basic, because of a definition of what a sentence is, you want to deal with passages sentence by sentence. Now, when I gave you the assignment to make observations on Acts 1-8, one of the things that uh, a few of you observed, and that was very good, uh, 
but I want to alert you to the fact that when I said 1-8, one of the observations you should have made was, this is not a complete sentence. The sentence doesn't begin until verse 7. So, uh, verse 7 goes with verse 8, and the two together form one sentence. So I uh, didn't try to trick you in any way. I just uh, wanted to emphasize later on after you did it, if you didn't make the observation, that this is very, very important. So we're actually not studying verse by verse. Now, expositors sometimes speak of verse by verse exposition, and I know what they mean. But technically, we should be studying sentence by sentence rather than verse by verse. And that Acts 1-8 is a good example. And sometimes a sentence like Romans 3, verse 21 through 26, a very theological passage. It's a paragraph in itself, but it's only one sentence. It's one complete sentence. So to really get at the the understanding of Romans 3, 21 through 26, you have to look at all of the verses together. Otherwise, you won't have the intended meaning of the original author. So we will be studying sentence by sentence. So the first step is to isolate a complete sentence. And then from there, now we're going to do basic analysis on that particular sentence. We'll work our way through the paragraph so that now we understand how that paragraph holds together. But it begins with looking at each sentence individually. So now we're going to break down that sentence and identify clauses. All sentences have at least one independent clause by definition. Otherwise, it's not a sentence. And many sentences have more than one clause. And there are two kinds of clauses. There are dependent and independent clauses or subordinate clauses. You might also describe a dependent clause as a subordinate clause. So you want to identify each of the clauses. Every clause, if it's a clause, must have its own subject and its own verb. Otherwise, it's, otherwise it's not a clause, whether dependent or independent. Now, the subject may be understood and part of the verb, but it will, in fact, have a subject by definition in order for it to qualify as a clause. So you want to break down the clauses within a sentence, and I think most of you can probably do that. So you have independent clauses. Every sentence has to have at least one. Even the sentence, Jesus wept. Two terms, two words, as a subject and a verb. One independent clause. If it has two independent clauses, then we call that a compound sentence. And some sentences will have two or maybe even more independent clauses. If there's more than one independent clause, then it's a compound sentence. A complex sentence, by definition, has at least one independent and one dependent or one subordinate clause. So if it has one of each, then it's called a complex sentence. 
a compound, complex sentence, like X1, 7, and 8. That's a compound complex because it has more than one independent clause and it has at least one other dependent clause. So that defines it as a compound complex. So you want to identify all of the clauses in that sentence. The third thing you do in basic analysis is now you want to identify the subjects and the verbs of each of those clauses. And I gave you an assignment that walked you through some of that, so I think most of you have an understanding of the subjects and the verbs. And the reason you do that is because the main item or idea or noun that is within that sentence, everything else is going to su- is going to be related to the subject, and the verb identifies the either state of being of the subject and or the action. So you have a subject and an action, and that is at the heart and at the essence of every sentence. If you can identify those two, then you have the heart of the sentence. Everything else, every other word, every other phrase, in some way modifies or tells you something more about the subject and the verb. So if you can identify those, then now everything else is just adding to something about the subject or something about the verb. So you want to do that. Every subordinate clause is going to tell you something more about that main subject and that main verb in that independent clause. So all subordinate clauses are just adding thoughts to modify or explain further something about the subject and the verb. So you want to be able to identify each in each of the clauses. So this is pretty basic, and you can do this at the observational level, just observing these things. But just simply by observing them, you have essentially analyzed the basic grammar of any sentence that you can deal with. Now, basic analysis as a fourth item, if there are other grammatical issues that need to be dealt with or thought through, This is now moving you into more of the interpretive stage where you might have to do some more study to identify some of these grammatical issues. In other words, it may not be clear how this dependent clause is in some way telling what what it's telling me about the independent clause. You might do some more thought on that. Or maybe it's not clear if you have more than one independent clause, which clause it relates to. Or if you have a series of subordinate clauses, you have to try to figure out how do they all relate. So these are other grammatical issues. How does this phrase fit in, and what does it modify? Does it modify the verb? Does it modify the subject? Does it modify something else? So these are all the other grammatical issues that you want to think through. And as many of those as you can identify and think through, and at, at this stage begin to see how all of the parts fit together, uh, the better will be your basic analysis. So that's basic analysis. It's not that complex. It's not that hard.
But this is where you start in order to break down and to try to get at the meaning of what the author is trying to communicate. So if you can identify the subject of the main clause, you are basically identifying the the main uh, subject in a broad sense, not in a grammatical sense, but the main subject of that whole sentence or the main idea or the concept that the author is trying to convey. And if you can identify the verb, then you have the action of that subject. So that's basic analysis. Let's take, let's take an example. And since you already looked at the book of Acts, let's take an example from chapter 1. And we'll take the passage right after Acts 1, 8, 7, and 8. In Acts 1, 9, the first thing I did, I did one complete sentence. And I know it's a complete sentence because it has a period at the end. It begins with a word with a capital letter. And it's not a proper name or anything. So the and with a capital letter identifies the beginning of the sentence. And there's nothing to break it up in terms of isolating any other sentences within. So the sentence runs from and all the way to the last word, sight. So that's our sentence that we're going to analyze. So secondly, so we have and and sight identifying the beginning and the end of the sentence. So now we want to do what? We've identified a complete sentence. Now we want to identify any clauses. So let me see if someone can identify the first independent clause. Anyone want to make a stab at it? Let me read it. And after he had said these things, comma, he was lifted up while they were looking on, comma, and a cloud received him out of their sight, period. First independent clause. Someone want to try to identify it? He was lifted up. He was lifted up. Yes. Yep, very good. Now let me ask somebody else. Is that the only independent clause in this sentence? He was lifted up. That is correct. That's the first independent clause. Uh, there's one more independent clause. Great. What is it? A cloud received him out of their sight. Yes. Now, in this case, you want to include the and, and because it kind of tells you that it's another of something. And in this case, it's another independent clause. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Very good. So those are the two independent clauses. So this is at least a compound sentence, but more than likely it's a compound complex so what we have remaining, if those two are independent clauses, then either we have simply phrases 
or we have the possibility of two other dependent clauses. Who wants to choose between whether these are simply phrases or two dependent clauses or one of each or whatever? And once you identify them, how do you know that they're dependent? Or what are the clues in the text that tell you that? See it? Well, um, he said is a noun verb and it's a um, and after he said these things, it's not a complete thought, so it's a Dependent clause. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the phrase, it's not an independent I mean, uh, they thought, but a dependent clause is introduced usually with, with connector and. Right. With and, and, or, after, and more, more likely the after. I think the and in this context connects it with the prior sentence. But the uh, subordinating conjunction is after. So after giving a time frame here, after he had said these things, dependent clause. Good stab, though. Uh, you identified the dependent clause, yes. Somebody else want to look at another phrase or clause? What do we have here? Well, they were looking on, comma. Sure is a quiet group. Say that again. I said sure is a quiet group. Uh, while they were looking on. Dependent, correct? How, what's the clue that helps you to see it as dependent? While. Yep, we also have a subordinating conjunction. Both of these are subordinating conjunctions relating to time. After in the first one and while in the second one, while they were looking on. So those are the two dependent clauses. So we have two independent clauses and two dependent clauses. Everybody see that? So this is a compound complex sentence. So let's take it to the third stage here and let's identify the subjects and the verbs. First of all, what is the subject of the first independent clause? It's uh, he. He. And go ahead and give me the verb. The verb is uh, was lifted. That's possible. It could be, it's not clear in the English. It could even be was lifted up. At least was. Yeah. So I would agree with you, was lifted, and I would include up in this case. Somebody else want to give the subject and the verb of the second independent clause? I think I have it identified for you. And a cloud, that's the sub, the cloud is the subject, received is the verb. And in this case, we would have him as an object, and then we have a prepositional phrase modifying it. So we've identified the subject and the verb of the 
two independent clauses. What about the dependent clauses? What about the first one? Subject and verb. He said. Well, I would include the had. He had said. He had said. So the he is the subject. Had said would be the verb. Sometimes it's two words to make a, a verb. What about the second dependent clause? Um, I would say they is the subject and we're looking is the verb. Okay. Yep, there you go. We're looking and you might put on the on, but that's probably separate. So I, I would agree with you. So there's the subjects and the verbs of the four clauses, two dependent, two independent. So we've done the major elements of basic analysis. Are there any other grammatical things to consider in this sentence? What else is there? We've, we've talked about and after already. We identified a subordinating conjunction. Uh, we didn't say anything about these things. So we might think some more about them. They're acting correct objects there. We talked about the while as a subordinating conjunction, touched on on. Uh, we, we talked about this time element. That's another grammatical consideration here to make that observation and or even conclusion, perhaps. These are time words. So uh, we're doing a pretty good, pretty thorough job just with basic analysis on a relatively mm, not so difficult, but not so easy sentence as well. Um, we might look at uh, him as a direct object, out of their sight, uh, out of their sight, prepositional phrase. Um, that's about it. So that's your basic analysis. We pretty much made it through that passage, and I think we have a good feel for it. Now you want to think in terms of what does it all mean. So from this, the main thing that is communicated by the sentence that someone is being lifted up, so we want to find out who the he is. And from the context, we can identify that as Jesus himself. So we can come to that conclusion from the context. So speaking of Jesus being lifted up in some way, and there's a time frame that introduces it. Uh, after he said certain things, we looked at 7 and 8, what he talked about. He basically commissioned the disciples, and after he did that, this event takes place of Christ being lifted up, and eventually you're going to come to the conclusion that this passage is describing the ascension of Jesus Christ, a very important passage, one of the few that describes that particular event, describing, describing it as a lifting up. 
So gravity has no effect on a resurrection body here because we, from the context, this is Christ's ministry after the resurrection. So we're putting all these things together in understanding what's communicating, communicated here. Uh, the second subordinate clause gives us another time frame while they, the they in this context were the disciples that he was speaking to earlier while they were looking on. And it's probably a surprising occasion for them to see Christ basically lifted off the face of the earth while they're looking on. And now he's absorbed by a cloud, probably. Uh, these are some of the investigate and see if they're valid. A cloud received him out of their sight. And we might want to keep reading to find out what other, what other things might have happened. So we're getting at the meaning here, basically from what is stated here. So the heart of what's being stated is Christ being lifted up and being received out of their sight in a cloud. And then we have two time element additional pieces of information given to us. So you see how once you've analyzed it, now you can take the next step to uh, accurately understand what is being communicated and knowing what are the main elements of this sentence. You have two main independent clauses. That is the heart uh, or the main ideas that are being communicated, in this case, two ideas, the lifting up of Christ and the receiving of him in a cloud. Everything else tells you a little bit about that. See how easy this is? No comment, huh? This example is pretty easy. (laughs) Some of Paul's sentences are not so easy. Yeah, we'll get into some of Paul's. And by the way, the more complex a sentence, the more important it is to do at least basic analysis. And I'm going to give you a couple of other ways of analyzing the grammar as well. Other means of structural analysis. But this is a relatively easy but yet not so easy sentence. Let's let's take a look at the next method. But you can apply that even to the most complex of Paul's sentences, and in fact we will, because we will we will follow all of those steps to begin with, but we'll take it to another stage in these other ways of doing grammatical analysis. So that's basic analysis. There's another approach that is called mechanical layout. And let me describe it, and then I'll uh, give you another example of it. Mechanical layout is a rewriting of the text in a form that will reveal the grammatical structure. So it's a rewriting of the, the biblical text. Now, I sent to you, did all of you get that uh, handout? It had four pages on it. Which handout? 
Which when I said for today, for today, said for today, the one you said yes, we have it, or I do. Anyway. Yeah. In fact, I forgot to uh, load it up here. Okay, so mechanical root layout is the rewriting of the text in a form that will reveal the grammatical structure. And what it is, is basically you're doing the same thing as you did in in uh, basic analysis. You're, obviously, the first thing that you're going to do is what? Identify a complete sentence. Second thing that you're going to do is you're going to identify houses. But now you're going to write it all out on a scratch sheet of paper so that you can see the structure and you write out the independent clause to the far left hand side of the paper and then everything that is subordinate to it you're going to indent depending on its uh, importance so if you have an independent clause it goes all the way to the left hand side of the paper then any subordinate clauses are at least one indentation to the right. So you're separating them out so that you can identify them and see them very quickly. If you have any modifiers, this is where we're taking it to the next stage, things that are modifying anything that's either in the independent clause or in the subordinate clause, then you put those modifiers like participles, prepositional phrases, infinitives, other types of phrases. You indent them one more indentation. If you have lists of things where you have just individual words, then you indent them one more stage. So that you can visually, as you look at that sheet of paper and you've rewritten all of these participles, prepositional phrases, subordinate clauses, etc., and lists, now you can see their relationship to each other. You can visually see how they fit in. Now, in a sentence like the one that we just used in an example, since it has another independent clause, so if you have another independent clause, then you put it to the far left-hand side of the sheet. We call that a coordinate clause or another a second independent clause. And then you do the same. If there are subordinate clauses within it, then you indent any modifiers, you indent further, any lists, etc. So it's just a rewriting of the text such that now you can see the structure of that passage. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's mechanical layout. And depending on the complexity and the content of that sentence, that arrangement on that sheet of paper will reflect the structure of that sentence, regardless of how, how difficult or complex or sim simple that sentence may be. Obviously, if there's just one independent clause and it's very simple, then there's really no need to do mechanical layout. But when you have lots of parts, you're trying to sort them out so that you can visually 
see them, and visually you'll be able to identify all of those relationships. So the example, Ray, yes. Ray, I had a quick question. When we're doing this um, mechanical breakdown, are we to be doing it in the order that the sentence is written, or are we going to group them based on how they relate to each other? Uh, you can do it either way. Uh, I like to do it in sequence. And another thing that I do that I don't show on the example is I will use uh, a pencil and write lines and, you know, arrows to show where things are related and that sort of thing. And I might even put brackets. Like I'll, I'll give you an example on the example I'm going to use. We're going to use an example from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. The top part of the sheet that I handed out is basically a reproducing of what I did on the slide there. Our main statement, independent clause, coordinate clauses, independent clauses to the far left, subordinate, etc., indented. And then if you skip down to Roman numeral number two there, the example, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and if you follow with your sheet there, using the New American Standard, can somebody, first of all, identify in the English text the first sentence? Yeah, it looks like it's verses 11 through 13. Yes, 11 through 13 starts with another and. And it's capitalized, and we don't have a period till we get to the end of 13. Christ. Uh, what about uh, the end of 12? What's going on there? We don't have a period. We have a, a definite break, but it's not a period or a question mark. It's a semicolon, which means it uh, is part, part of the, it's just the end of a part of the sentence, but the sentence doesn't end there. Doesn't, so, a semi, doesn't a semicolon normally come between independent clauses? Usually. Usually, but not in this case. Okay. Yeah, you're correct. Usually. So, uh, somebody identify the first independent clause. Uh, how about, and he gave... Uh, there's more to the clause than that. You've, it's, it's, okay. you've identified the essence of it, but uh, where does it, where does it end? goes all the way to the end of 12. Yes, yeah. it goes all the way to the end of 12. And that may be why a semicolon is there, is because there's a lot there, and it wants to break it from uh, what follows, which we'll talk about in a moment. So all of that is the first independent clause. Are there any others? Well, in the mechanical layout, they would stand out if there was an independent clause and you'd see it. But uh, that's the only independent clause from the beginning of verse 11 to the end of verse 12. Everything else in there is just telling you something about the subject. What is the subject of that independent clause? Hey. 
He and the verb he gave. Pretty simple. He gave. Now, everything else is going to tell us about something that whoever the he is, whoever the he, and it's capitalized, so we have a little bit of a hint there, and if we study the context, we probably come to the conclusion that it's Christ. Christ gave something, and whatever he gave, he's going to tell us what they are. And then we have a series of prepositional phrases. So we have a series of direct objects. And if I were writing on my sheet of paper, I would put all of those direct objects something like a in a bracket or in some way, and I'd point it to the gave. In other words, these are the objects, the direct objects of that verb gave. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. And I have it way to the right because this is a list. It's not a clause. It's it's, it's not a, even a modifier, but more of a list. So I have a list of direct objects here. Some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Those are the direct objects of the gave. But visually, where where would the, if you had one direct object, just like apostles, where would that go? That would just go along with, and he gave some as apostles, comma. So so you put it in the, all the way to the left as part of the, you don't have a list, yeah. Okay. You would just follow until you get something that kind of breaks it up, like the prepositional phrases. Yeah, very good. So if the sentence was, and he gave some as apostles for the equipping of the saints, da-da-da-da-da, then the sum, there would not be a list there, so everything would just be moved up, and the sum as apostles would follow right after gave. But now we have some modifiers that are not dependent clauses. They're prepositional phrases. In fact, a series, um, you could even break those up because we have Prepositional phrases within prepositional phrases, you might say, for the equipping of the, of the saints. That's another prepositional phrase. But I think it goes with the, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. You have something similar there to the building up of the body of Christ. So you have three prepositional phrases in the last, but they seem to go together. Uh, if you wanted to, you could uh, break them down as well so that you could visually see them. But you see what I've done there? See how I've broken them out? Three prepositional phrases. Or sets of prepositional phrases. And now we get to the next. We have until we all attain. What is that the beginning of? Beginning in verse 13. Subordinate clause. A subordinate clause, and that subordinate clause goes all the way to where? You can visually see it. It goes all the way to stature. See how you can visually see it very easily? And now you have another subordinate clause, but it is subordinate to the first subordinate clause, so I indent it again, just to show that it is further indented, if you will, or further uh, subordinate, you might say. So, until we have a subject, we attain, all just modifies the attain, so there's the main part of that dependent clause. 
until is another time word or subordinating conjunction that gives us a time frame. Not all of them do that. We've just encountered three of them here in a row. Until we all attain to something. Now we have a series of prepositional phrase to the unity of the faith and another uh, kind of on the same level prepositional phrase and of the knowledge. And now this knowledge is modified by another set of prepositional phrases or three sets of prepositional phrases of the son of God. Prepositional phrase with a prepositional phrase to a measure to a mature man to the measure of the stature another prepositional phrase within a prepositional phrase that modify knowledge so now I know all of that modifies knowledge if I've correctly analyzed this so I have to ask the question is to a mature man is that modifying the unity of the faith or is it modifying of the knowledge of the Son of God, or maybe it is modifying that prepositional phrase. The way I've broken it down is they are coordinated with one another. In other words, on an equal level. And then the last subordinate clause, which we have a different kind now, of Christ. The which acts like the subject but that, I would draw a line with an arrow to stature, because it modifies or expands stature. And even if you wanted to, I didn't, because it almost makes it, well, it is subordinate to that prepositional phrase, but it it almost makes it look like it's less than a prepositional phrase. So I, I put it in the position of a subordinate clause to make sure that I can see it as a subordinate clause. But I will probably draw a line with an arrow that points to the stature so that I, I'm alerted that he's expanding this measure of the stature, whatever that is. Whatever that stature is, it belongs to the fullness of Christ. See how you can visually see the parts here? Then I've given you the next sentence in the English. So we have to have an independent clause. And in fact, 14 through 16, we have two independent clauses. See how they're both way to the the left. As a result, we are no longer to be children. And that goes all the way to the semicolon. And then you have another independent clause, but a contrast. I didn't put it all in there, but you can fill in the little details and work your way through that. But there's an illustration of a very complex sentence. And by the way, in the Greek text, the sentence actually runs from verse 11 all the way to the end of verse 16. So it's a very, very long and complicated sentence in the, in the Greek text. The English breaks it down into two parts there. 11 through 13 and 14 through 16. And by the way, this is a very central passage. I'll probably comment some more about this later on after we get to another stage of interpretation. Come back to this passage. 
But for now, you see how mechanical layout works and how it visually allows you to be able to see the structure of the passage. Independent clauses being the most important, so they're the furthest to the left. Dependent clauses next in priority of importance, so they are indented one level over. And if you have one within another one, then you can indent it a little bit more. Prepositional phrases, they all modify. Those are modifiers. Uh, they are indented a little bit more to the right. And then I have the lists over to the right. Now, you might even consider these prepositional phrases as something like lists, but they're lists of prepositional phrases and a little bit of a higher level as to just these phrases, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, etc. Do you just use your judgment as to how far to indent it? Because um, it looks like there's some judgment involved in that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I indented more than one space just to make it more vivid, I guess, on the sheet. Yeah, you, you're doing this for yourself so that you can see it. So whatever is visually defining for you, that's that's what you want to shoot for. Yeah, this is for you. This, I, I mean, if you... You turn in an assignment, I mean, you're, you're doing it for me, but the bottom line is sizing the structure so that you can see it visually and be able to see how all of these parts relate. Okay? Everybody good? Yeah, you can you can study that a little bit more, and the assignment is to analyze a sentence, and you can use either mechanical layout, and if you do the mechanical layout, then you will have already done basic analysis, so I'm not asking you to do basic analysis, because you will have done that in order to be able to do mechanical layout. And the other option is the third option, which is the most detailed and, in some cases, for most people, the most difficult. So we've looked at basic analysis. We just completed discussing mechanical layout. And now we want to talk about diagramming. And I don't know, I don't think they do that in grade school anymore. When I was growing up, they did it, but I was totally lost in it and never learned how to do any diagramming, so I never did any of that when I was learning grammar. It wasn't until I began to see the need for grammatical analysis in the biblical text that I found the use for diagramming such that today, everything that I do before I exegete any passage, the first thing I will do is diagram it. And partly because I feel a weakness in, in grammar, so things don't immediately pop out just by reading the biblical text, even from the original languages. So I 
committed way back when I started the exegetical process last century. Started diagramming, and I've diagrammed virtually every passage that I've exegeted. And I have found that this, and I'll show you later on when we go go to uh, the next part of the exegetical process, diagramming essentially breaks the passage down for me in such a way that if I can diagram it, I I can work, I, I can understand the thoughts that God is trying to communicate. I can see how all of the parts fit together. The difference between diagramming and mechanical layout, mechanical layout gives you the main parts. Diagramming forces you to deal with every single word in the passage. In other words, where does it fit? So, what is it? Diagramming is graphically portraying each word of the sentence. And if you remember your 8th grade or 6th grade, I don't remember what it was, grammar, whenever you did the uh, diagramming, it forces you to place every word in relationship to all of the other words. And there are diagramming conventions. So let me illustrate it. Because what it does is it forces you to try to make decisions. Now, you're already making some interpretive decisions as you're going through the diagramming process. You're making decisions along the way as to how things relate to one another. And sometimes they're not clear. Sometimes you have to think them through. I'm going to give you an example of one that is not clear when we go to an example. In fact, we're going to go to that same same verse and we'll diagram it. I, I sent you... Uh, a diagram of that, not verse, but that sentence or those two sentences, that Ephesians passage. So we graphically portrayed each word of the sentence. And like I said, when you have a very, very complex sentence like this example, you have a greater need because you have so many things going on that you have to keep track of. And by diagramming, it forces you to put everything down so that you can visually see it as well. So it takes it the next step from mechanical layout. So you have a sentence, a long sentence, like those that you'll find in primarily the letters and primarily Paul, where Paul will just go on and on and on, and in the Greek text never come to the end of the sentence. Now the English translations sometimes break them down, but even... Those parts that are broken down, like the example I just gave you, even those are very complex, very difficult to follow. So it looks like a puzzle. And in fact, if you view diagramming something like a puzzle, and lots of people like to work these, or others like those crossword puzzles, this is like a crossword puzzle where you're fitting the words now, you're fitting letters together in a crossword puzzle, but here you're going to try to see the relationship of all of the words. So the puzzle parts are analogous to the parts of a puzzle here. 
What's the first thing that you do in diagramming? You go through the stages of basic analysis. And what's the first thing that you do? Isolate the sentences, complete sentences. Isolate the complete sentences. Exactly. Very good. You'll never want to forget that. So, kind of by way of analogy, we will isolate sentences. In other words, we'll string, we'll try to string all these words together until we get to a point where we get to the end of the string. And just like in a puzzle, when you get all to the edges, those are the boundaries of your puzzle. That is analogous to the boundaries of a sentence. You have the beginning and the end of a sentence. Those are the boundaries. So you look for all the edge pieces or the parts that identify one whole sentence. So we're isolating clauses now. The next thing that you're going to do is isolate clauses. You'll isolate independent clauses and identify them. Work your way through identifying dependent clauses next. And we're just working our way through basic analysis. Find the subject and the verb. Putting things together now. Subjects and verb. And this leads us to the diagramming conventions. So let me go over a set of diagramming conventions that are pretty common. The conventions are not as important as, as you coming up with whatever you're comfortable with. In other words, if, if you find a different convention that is easier for you, then use it. But here's a set that if you want to follow these and use these, then you're certainly welcome. They're not mine. I got these out of a grammar book, and these are pretty standard. So you start with the subject and the verb. And in diagramming, you draw a horizontal line to represent the main parts of an independent clause to start off with. And you're going to divide that line with a vertical line that goes through and past that horizontal line. That's going to be the divider between the subject and the verb. So you identify the subject of that first independent clause, write it down, and then the verb following the vertical line on the same horizontal line. And now any other parts, and I'm going to give you the convention for these various parts, in some sentences, you might have a direct object, like that one sentence we just looked at. So you put it with a following the verb with a vertical line that stops at the horizontal. That's the convention for a direct object. If you have a modifier that is nonverbal, a nonverbal modifier that's modifying a noun, in this case, I'm showing it as modifying the subject. But it could also modify the direct object. If that's the case, then the slanted line would be pointing to the direct object. But in this case, just as an example, I'm modifying the subject. It's an adjective in this case, or, or it could be a participle. Well, no, this is nonverbal, so it's more than likely an adjective. 
The convention for an indirect object is almost identical, except the indirect object line, the horizontal line, goes past the slanted line. Now, I have all these conventions on that sheet that I handed out, so you don't need to keep them as notes. Prepositional phrases. Here are the conventions for prepositional phrases. You have the preposition. And then you have an object of a preposition separating the preposition with a vertical line that stops at the horizontal line. So all of these are modifiers in some way. And in this case, I'm showing the indirect object relating to the verb. I'm showing the prepositional phrase relating to the verb, but you might have a prepositional phrase that modifies the subject. If in that case, then you have the slanted line uh, under the subject. If the prepositional phrase is modifying the direct object, then you would have it under the direct object. Does that make sense? So wherever, whatever it's modifying, that's where you put it. I'm just showing you the convention here. So it could be in a variety of places. In fact, you could have, in fact, I'll give you an example of a prepositional phrase that modifies a prepositional phrase. And I'll show you the convention of it. I just show another prepositional phrase under the first object of the first prepositional phrase. So there's the convention. And what you're doing is you're, you're looking for word relationships and you're starting to put together your, your puzzle. There are other parts of speech besides subjects and verbs and direct objects and prepositional phrases. There are verbal ideas as well, so let's take a look at them. But through it all, we're looking for word relationships. How do they relate? Where do they fit? Where do all the parts fit together? The groups of parts, you might put them together and eventually they'll fit in until you, fin until you come to the place where you begin to complete the puzzle. So we started with the independent clause or the main parts of it, a subject verb and in this case a direct object. You may not have a direct object in some cases or you might have something else. I'll show you something else later. Now I'm going to give you a modifier that's nonverbal, in this case, modifying a verb, not a verb, so it's the same as what we had before, except now it's in a different position. This is the convention for a modifier with a partial verbal idea, or a participle. This is the convention for a participle, primarily. This is the convention for an infinitive. It's a vertical line down to a horizontal line, and the infinitive is following a double vertical line that goes past the horizontal line. That's the convention that I use. Okay, and again, I've got an example of this on your handout. If you have... A compound subject, you have two subjects, you put it in brackets like this and you have one verb, so this is the convention for doing something like that. You might have two things that are following with the same action. 
something like the boys and the girls walked together or something like that. So you have boys, subject, girls, subject, and they both walked, verb, action. And if you have an and in there, you might have a coordinating conjunction, so that's where your and will go. So that's how you put those together. Now, obviously, if you have a double verb and one subject, then you kind of have the counterpart of that, where you have one subject and then you have two verbs in brackets with a coordinating conjunction in between. Okay? You'll come across some sentences that might have a term, and then you'll have kind of a a word that follows it that specifies something about that term. And grammatically, that's called uh, an appositive. And you do that by showing it with an equal sign. In other words, you have a word and then the equivalent of it or what it's explaining with an equal sign. So that's a convention for that. So these are all parts, usually, well, they can be parts of either an independent or dependent clause, but so far I've only shown you independent clauses, so all of these you'll find in independent clauses. How do you display a subordinate clause? Let's take a look at subordinate clauses. We're getting closer to completing our puzzle here. You have an independent clause, and you have a subject and a verb. And I give you the convention for what's called a subject complement with a slanted line instead of a vertical line. The vertical line is for the direct object, but now we have a subject complement. And what we mean by that, you usually have a stative verb. The the hat is black. Black is a subject complement, and this is how you would uh, designate it on a diagramming. Uh, the verb is, it's a stative verb, so the subject is the hat. The hat is, that's the verb, subject complement, black. Now the subject, the subordinate clause, you have a subordinating conjunction, you put it on this slanted line, but the slanted line now is in the other direction. And every subordinate clause has to have what? So we have something similar to the independent clause. We have a horizontal line with a vertical line that passes through. So you have to have on both sides, what do you have? Subject and verb. Subject and verb. Very good. So there you go. That's the convention for subordinate clause or dependent clause. It has subordinating conjunction with a subject and verb. And you can have everything modifying it. We can have, you can have a infinitive. You can have a participle. You can have Adjectives, adverbs, etc. Just like we showed the convention. So the conventions would be the same there. I don't have to show them again. What if you have a compound complex sentence? What do you do with that? Or, yeah, compound complex sentence. Well, if it's compound, then uh, you have two independent clauses, so you have both on the same level, and you have the, the two of them bracketed together. And if you have a, if it's complex, then you have a subordinate clause, and I just showed you the convention for it, and in this case, 
I'm showing a subordinate clause modifying the verb of the first independent clause. And then now I have a, a second independent clause. And I'll have a coordinating conjunction, usually an and or maybe a but. And then I'll have a subject and a verb. See how this just just kind of builds on itself here? What is often found in the Bible are another construction where you have what are called evocative, preceding an independent clause. And the way we put that is up on a, a stand, I guess you could say, with a dotted line showing where it goes with the the independent sentence or independent clause. If you have a main clause and you have an antecedent in that clause, you might have a relative clause that begins with a relative pronoun, which is oftentimes the subject of a sentence. This is the convention for that, a dotted line showing that this relative pronoun is related to this antecedent. In other words, this is where it goes. And if it's also containing a dependent clause, then you'd have a subject and a verb in there, and oftentimes that pronoun would be the subject. It's possible to have an entire clause that acts as a subject. So this is how you would have a subject clause. So in that subject clause, you'll have a subject and a verb, and that whole clause acts as a subject. So you have a subject and a verb up there, and maybe some parts to it as well. And if that whole clause acts as a subject, then you put it up on a stilt, like you do there, and the whole thing is acting like a subject. Similarly, you can have a verb clause, and if you do, then you put it in the position of the verb, but that whole clause is acting like a verb. You may even have a direct object or an object clause, and sometimes you might have a subordinating conjunction. Now, you could show this in two ways. You could show it as a subordinating clause, or you can show it as an object clause, like a direct object. Another way you could show it is you could have a direct object line, and you could have this in the position where you have the direct object as an object clause. And that's virtually all of the different ways that words and phrases can fit in a sentence. So those are the conventions. And you use those conventions now to analyze uh, the grammar. And when you've done that, you've completed the puzzle. Every word has its place. And there's no missing word in the puzzle. Any words in your diagramming. And once you've made a decision concerning where every word fits, now you have a complete picture or a complete idea in terms of what the author is trying to communicate. When you do diagramming, do you do it by hand, or do you have a computer app that helps you do it on the computer? I've done it over the years by hand. Lagos has a 
diagramming um, function, I guess you could say. And I've tried it, and it just seems like it takes me longer to do it with Lagos, and it seems to have some limitations. And I haven't been able to figure out how to overcome some of those limitations, so I just continue to do it on a sheet of paper. And and in general, I will go through several pieces of paper before I'm happy with with what I what I complete. And for example, now that I'm going through the Book of Romans, I'm going over the diagramming that I did years ago. And in some cases, changing my mind, and I'm basically redoing all of it to reflect kind of my latest thinking on on the on the passage. It looks like it was pretty tedious to put together the Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 example that you gave us in the handout. Yeah, that was tedious to get it on one sheet. Yeah, because I had to and type, type, it. type yeah. it on there. Yeah. But basically, when, if you do it with a pencil and a sheet of paper, you know, it's just a matter of doing it and you, you're not happy with it. You start over and do whatever you need to do, leaving space, etc. You do a little bit of preliminary thinking. You kind of isolate your independent clause. So you have an idea of where you're going so that you leave space to add all of the individual words. Uh, we'll go through a couple of examples and you'll see how it all works. But... We're at a point where we need to probably take a break and do what you need to do during the break, and let's come back in about seven to ten minutes. Last hour, we were looking at structural analysis. We looked at three different ways to analyze literary structure or grammatical structure, rather. Literary structure is outside of the sentence, but grammatical structure is primarily within a sentence, how all of the parts of a sentence fit together. And this will be the most important step, I think, in the whole exegetical process. And personally, after I do a little bit of preliminary exegesis, I jump right in and start diagramming because the diagramming process alerts me to some of the issues, some of the problems, some of the things that I need to study further. It identifies what the main words are because they are part of the main independent clauses of that paragraph that I'm exegeting. And it lays out all the parts. So I start very early with the diagramming process and then I go from there. And like I said, I have kind of disciplined myself to diagram every passage that I exegete, because that's part of the process for me. And since I feel something of a, I don't know, a weakness in the area of grammar, as I've always have, I have felt like, at least for me, I need to, whereas not everyone does. In fact, I don't even know what percentages of expositors do, but because of my situation, I felt like I had to discipline myself to do it, so I just have gotten into the habit of doing it. 
And as a result, I've diagrammed all of the Gospels, all of the Book of Acts, all of the Book of Romans, all of Ephesians, all of uh, Colossians, all of First Thessalonians, a little bit of First Corinthians in there, see if I missed any books, all of Philippians, I've diagrammed all of Philippians, all of Titus, all of the Book of Hebrews, First and Second Peter, and I believe the book of Revelation. I think I've, that's all of the books. And a few passages in the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, a lot of the early chapters of Genesis. So I've done quite a bit of diagramming. And as a result, I think it has greatly benefited and enhanced my exegetical work. So let me complete a little bit of the lecture and then we'll look at a couple of examples of diagramming. What diagramming will do for you, it reveals, obviously, as I've said, the grammatical structure of the passage. And it'll reveal to the ultimate in terms of every single word. Every word has its place from that last slide that we looked at last last hour. It forces you to make decisions as to the relationship of every word. Now, once I've diagrammed a passage, sometimes I'll go back and say, no, 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 I made a mistake. That was not the right decision. So, but at least it'll alert me as to maybe different possibilities. And sometimes I won't see that immediately, but eventually as I work through the process, at least I've made an initial attempt. And then later on, I can change things as I refine my, uh, understanding of the passage, but it'll force you to at least make a decision early on in order to complete your diagramming. It's the third day, it's the basic worksheet for all your other analysis. So once I've got the sheet diagram, now I can put notes there and again using arrows and different things I can identify other relationships that I see, for example, if I see a word that's used four or five times in the diagramming, I might draw an arrow between all of the four times that it occurs to show, hey, this is an important word. Maybe this is a word I want to do a word study on. So it's a basic word sheet for all other analysis. If I need to identify some of the grammatical categories, you know, if I'm not real clear on an infinitive, for example, I might write down infinitive there so that I, you know, oh, okay, this is an infinitive, so I have the right designation on it on the diagramming. Or tenses, you know, that's not showing up on your diagramming. You might put tenses of the verbs that you have. Uh, those kinds of things, you can write all of that on your sheet of diagramming, but it's the basic worksheet for all other analysis. 
Fourthly, it brings analysis and synthesis together because once you break a passage down, before you're done exegeting it, you want to bring bring it all together. And we'll talk some more about, about synthesis in the next lecture where where you bring it together from the diagramming. It's on the diagramming sheet. That that's your next step to bringing everything back together. But you have to break it down in order to see how all of the parts relate, and then you bring them back together. That's called synthesis. And fifthly, it's the basis for what we'll talk about next week, an exegetical outline. We might get to it today. I don't know. We'll have to see how far I get here. But... You'll put together an exegetical outline. I've already explained a little bit of that. When you did a book study, you had the beginnings of an outline of the whole book. It may be very rough at this stage. And as you work your way through a book, and particularly if you exegete every passage in that book, then the outline that you end up with will be very much more refined. So diagramming gives you the basis for an exegetical outline in the most detailed part in that you will be diagramming sentence by sentence. And I'll show you how your diagramming will just produce basically the the exegetical outline. An exegetical outline reflects the structure of a sentence. It'll reflect the structure of a paragraph. It'll reflect the the structure of a a section of a book, a division, a subdivision, a division. And obviously, if you have an outline of the whole book, then you have the structure of that book. And what that structure is, those are God's thoughts. What God is trying to communicate. So once you've done that, you have thought through that passage, you are thinking God's thoughts after him. So serve as the basis for your exegetical outline. And when you write your paper, you will produce an exegetical outline of a passage from the English text. Any questions from anything that we talked about last hour or any of the Three methods that we've talked about, and particularly diagramming, that's kind of what we ended with. Pretty straightforward, not easy, but hopefully you understand what we're getting at here. No sound, I'm assuming uh, everything's fine. Let's take a look at that same passage that we looked at before. And let's diagram it. And like I said, when we did the mechanical layout, we start by identifying uh, a complete sentence. And we already said that uh, 11 through 13 is a complete sentence, beginning with and. The and is capitalized. And if you look at uh, verse 10, you'll see that verse 10 ends with a period. And if you read through it, and he gave some as apostles, comma, some as prophets, comma, some as evangelists, comma, some as pastors and teachers, comma, 
Next verse, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of, or there's a comma there, to the building up of the body of Christ, semicolon. And one of you, I can't remember who, pointed out semicolon oftentimes introduces an independent clause. But in this case, we have a subordinating conjunction beginning in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, comma, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, comma, to a mature man, comma, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, period. Oh, there's the end of the sentence. So, sentence runs from 11 to 13. Somewhat of a long sentence and with many parts. So, what's the next thing we want to try to do here? Isolate the sentences. Well, we did that. We isolated the, the first sentence, 11 through 13. Second thing we want to do. Identify the uh, independent clauses. Independent clauses. And somebody remind us of what we came to when we looked at mechanical layout. We identified the first independent clause running from the beginning to where? From 11 to the end of 13. No. Oh, for the independent clause. To the semicolon. The semicolon. Yep, exactly. And uh, that's just one independent clause with a lot of parts to it. There are no subordinate clauses in there, just one independent clause. What's the main subject and the main verb, or the the verb and the subject of that independent clause? We went over this already. Yeah, he is the subject and gave is the verb. All right, very good. So we've identified this subject and the verb of the independent clause. Now we have a subordinate clause. How do we know it's subordinate beginning in verse 13? Because of the word until. Until. It's a subordinating conjunction, another time word. Where does that dependent clause Go to, until we all attain to the unity, stop me, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, does it end with a comma, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, another comma, to the measure of the stature, nobody's going to stop. Broadwater into 13. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't get my mic open yet. Couldn't get it up soon enough. Stature. Because we have the beginning of another dependent clause beginning with which. So, not quite to the end of verse 13 to the word stature. So, let's kind of highlight some things. There's the subject of the first clause he gave. Now we have a subordinating conjunction in verse 13 until. And we have the subject we attain. All modifies attain, so the subject, we, and the verb is attain, and that runs all the way to stature, and now he's going to modify stature with a subordinate clause, which, which acts as the subject, which belongs, there's the verb, to the fullness of Christ, period. And then verse 14 starts another sentence. Okay? 
So we've broken it down. <clears throat> we've identified one independent clause, two dependent clauses. So it's a complex sentence. And it's got lots of prepositional phrases, which are not difficult, but uh, we'll have to make some decisions as to what do they relate to, how do they relate, how do they fit together, and that sort of thing. So let's start with the main thing. So we want to diagram, first of all, the subject and the verb. And in this case, we want to include with it the direct object. So this is the way that we would diagram that portion of it. This is first part of verse 11. And notice I have and that connects on the far left-hand side there, up on a stilt there. That connects with the prior sentence. And because it's capitalized, it's the first word of this sentence. So we have a connecting word. It's not a subordinating word, but it connects to verse 10. And if you study verse 10, you'll see that it's just following one thought after another. And I put the subject in that proper location and the verb in its proper location. I made a long line because I'm going to have a lot of stuff underneath the gave. And as you first look at a passage, this might be how you might start so that you know there's going to be a lot of stuff underneath here, so you leave space so you don't have to copy it 20 times. You maybe you have to copy it three times instead of 20. And we have a series of direct objects, and here's an example of phrases that are in apposition to one another. He gave some, and that's equal to as apostles. Uh, there might be some other things going on there, but let's start with that. And we have something similar. We have an and, so we have another similar idea, similar direct object. Some as prophets, and we have a third, some as evangelists. And then we have another and, some as pastors and teachers. Now, they seem to be grouped together, so I grouped them together after the as. See how that worked? So there's a list of direct objects, and I've kind of laid out how all of those are related. They kind of relate one in series, or or rather in parallel, rather. Okay, any problem with that? Now, that's not the whole independent clause, but we have a series of prepositional phrases, beginning in verse 12. So we've completed uh, diagramming verse 11. I think we've accounted for every word in verse 11. And then verse 12, for the equipping, prepositional phrase, of the saints, prepositional phrase, for the work, prepositional phrase, of service, prepositional phrase, to the building up, prepositional phrase, of the body, prepositional phrase, you're getting tired of me hearing saying it, of Christ, last one, last prepositional phrase. So we have several in there. So now we have to figure out how are these related for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, so I just start diagramming. 
And one way of diagramming this is the way I've got it on the sheet there. I've got them sequential. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So I have for the equipping, and then I have a prepositional phrase modifying the equipping, the equipping of the saints. So I have a prepositional phrase modifying the equipping. You see that? So I'm using a convention of prepositional phrases, which is a horizontal line with the preposition separated by the, with a vertical line that stops at the horizontal. So the preposition separates the object of the preposition. And in this case, I have a prepositional phrase modifying a prepositional phrase. And now, in sequence, at least this is the way I diagrammed it here. There's another option that I'll show you in a moment, but let's go through this first of all. For the work of service, we have another prepositional phrase that modifies that prepositional phrase. In fact, the way I've diagrammed it, I have the for the work also modifying the equipping. You see that? So I have two things modifying the equipping, two prepositional phrases. And I also have two prepositional phrases modifying the work. It's the work of service, and it's the work to the building up. And then I have a prepositional phrase modifying the building up, the building up of the body. And rather than of Christ, that modifies the body, the body of Christ. Everybody comfortable with that diagramming? You see how everything there is related, at least in this way of diagramming it? Yes. Yeah, it looks good, Ray. Thanks. I want you to correct me if I make a mistake here. Now, this is why diagramming is valuable, because as you look at that, you might say, well, are there other ways of arranging all those prepositional phrases? And in fact, there is. And there's another possibility. Instead of this sequence, in other words, for the equipping of the saints, then the next step in the sequence, for the work of service, then the third step in the sequence, to the building up of the body of Christ, maybe we can arrange those prepositional phrases in this way, where they're in parallel. Now, there's not an and in there, but it could still be parallel for the equipping Now, of the saints. I think that still modifies equipping. But instead of for the work of service, modifying the equipping, I have it now kind of on the same level as the for the equipping. And I would put of service still modifying the work, the work of service. And then I have a third parallel parallel to the first two, to the building up. And the building up is of the body, so of the body still modifies building up. And of Christ still modifies the body of Christ there. But do you see the difference between the two? Yeah, that's very interesting how the parallel uh, diagram kind of puts three things at the same level, whereas yes. the first was just a sequential 
downflow of, of ideas. Yeah, and those are, uh, there's nothing in the English, and by the way, in the Greek, that indicates one or the other. So that's an exegetical decision that you make. But it forces you to make these decisions. How are all these related? And here's two possibilities for the, the series of several prepositional phrases. Now, this is very significant. Let me point it out at, even at this point, because there are two radically different meanings based on how you take those relationships. It's going to affect the interpretation. That's why diagramming is going to force you to think through and make some of these decisions. The way I've got it diagrammed in the sequential, what we're saying here, and I'm saying that it, it, is, it is modifying the giving. In other words, God is giving certain things, a series of things, for a particular purpose. Now, the way it's laid out here, for the equipping of the saints, in other words, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are to go about the ministry of equipping the saints. But the sequential, after the saints are equipped, now it's the saints who are doing the work of service. See that? See what I'm saying here? So the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of service. And when the saints do the work of service, that's to the building up of the body of Christ. So when they do that, the body of Christ is built up. And I believe that this is the correct um, diagram as opposed to this. The difference in this one, what it's saying, the the apostles, the prophets, the the evangelists, the pastor, teachers, they do all three. They're on the same level. In other words, the pastor, teachers, he gave uh, or Christ gave them so that the saints can be equipped by pastors, teachers, etc. He gave pastors, teachers, evangelists, etc. To do the work of service, third purpose, and a, or second purpose, and a third purpose, he gave pastors, teachers, evangelists, pastor, teacher, or uh, prophets, I keep forgetting the prophets, to the building up of the body of Christ. So, it's a totally different philosophy of minister ministry based on how you take those prepositional phrase in relationship to one another. You see the radical difference there? Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And and the um, the sequential one is like the kind of doctrine that I've always been taught. Um, so when you come up with these like two ways to look at this, do you look at you look at other things within within the uh, within the um, the Bible to try and lead you on on which way is correct. Or yeah, which yeah. Part of the part of the exegetical processes is later on. But what I'm trying to yeah, exactly. What I'm trying to demonstrate here, the decisions you make at this level are going to determine sometimes huge things down the way. 
And sometimes you'll change your mind because you say, oh, okay, I, I think I misdiagrammed this. I, you know, they're not in parallel, they're in sequence. But the diagram is going to point that out. That's the point I'm making here. Oops. I think it's best to take them sequentially. And I think what we have here, and by the way, this is the only passage in the New Testament that I think gives a philosophy of ministry in terms of how a church should function I believe church leaders, whether they be in the form of apostles, prophets, evangelists, or pastors, teachers, or a combination of all of them, they should equip the saints in order to do the, the, the work of the ministry. And when the saints are equipped, now the body is built up. Yeah, the only thing I'm pointing out here, I'm not trying to, I'm not preaching here, I'm just trying to demonstrate how the diagramming and how you see these relationships is going to uh, lead to how you take what uh, Paul is saying here, what he's what he's teaching here. And there's two radically different things there, just by the arrangement of how those prepositional phrases are diagrammed. Okay, so we've done verse twelve. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, semicolon. So we've completed the first independent clause. Everybody happy with that? But we have some other parts. Now, let me remind you, everything in this sentence is telling us something about the he, the subject, and... And the verb. So it's Christ who gave all of these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he gave all of them for a particular purpose. And there's two possible ways that you can understand that purpose. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, etc., so everything in that sentence or that independent clause relates to the subject and the giving. See that? Now, because it's one sentence, now verse 13 is going to just simply add some more. It's going to tell us some more about this giving and about the Christ that is the one that is giving. And it's giving us a time frame. So it's telling us that there's some time element to the giving of apostles, prophets, etc. And this is to go on until something happens, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And by the way, are we there yet? Probably not, right? (laughs) Until we all, now we break this one down, this is a subordinate clause, until we all attain, so we got the subject and the verb again, and now we want to break it down and diagram it, so we're going to have a subordinate clause that has a subject and a verb, and we're going to have a coordinating conjunction until, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature, and we might stop there so that we can get to the last subordinate clause. So let's add to our diagramming here. 
And the giving is until, that's why I say that the subordinate clause is modifying the, the gave, or the word gave there. It's not modifying the subject, it's modifying the verb, so I have it under the verb. And I think the giving is also modifying the verb, so I've got it modifying the verb. And it's until there's a subordinating conjunction, we attain, so there's the subject of the subordinate clause, attain is the verb, and we it, we have a, an adjective that modifies we, so we all. And now we have another series of prepositional phrases, and I've broken these down to the unity of the faith, similar to what we did in verse 12. And then we have an and, so I think we have a parallelism there, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Happy with that one? Probably not a sequence there, but probably more just two parallel thoughts there. Attaining to two things. Attaining to some unity, unity of the faith, and uh, attaining a certain content of some knowledge. So we have kind of a long-range view here. Christ giving apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for a long-range goal here. Until we, and you might want to explore who the we there is. He's writing to the Ephesians. Are they a representative church of the entire church? That's a decision you'll make theologically. And if it's talking about the church, he's talking about how the church should function, the place of leaders and their function, and the place of the saints in building up the body. And this process should continue until certain things are accomplished. See, we're getting at the meaning here. We're beginning to interpret. We'll modify it, we'll add to it, we'll refine it. So, uh, we're going to attain to a certain unity and a certain amount of knowledge or content of knowledge. And he adds a couple of prepositional phrases. And here's another decision. Does this modify the attaining? Or could it modify the knowledge? Well, it probably looks best to modify the attaining. It probably doesn't modify the unity. So I add another series of prepositional phrases that modify attain. And by the way, in my diagramming, I try to keep things in the order that they appear in the text as well, because it's easier to follow. So I've got these organized according to the text there. So until we attain to a man, and a not a just any kind of a man, to a mature man, so he's giving some other parameters of how long this process should continue, so a certain amount of maturity, and in parallel, and uh, I might debate whether the measure modifies man, and we might have sequence there. That's another exegetical decision. I show it on the, the sheet there as parallel, but we might debate that. We might change our mind on that. 
So we attain to the measure of the stature, and now we have a subordinate clause that modifies the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Everybody happy with that? See how we're laying out all of the parts you were going to say? I was just going to say, looks good. Okay, so that's the complete sentence right there. 11 through 13, so you have your independent clause with verse 12 as a series of prepositional phrases that probably give us a purpose idea. And then you have a subordinate clause that later on has a subordinate clause within it. And it looks more at a kind of a long-range goal of the this giving of church leaders or apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, part of the whole discussion here, if you put it in its context, he's already talked about spiritual gifts. And one of the things you'll determine are, is he talking about leaders per se, or is he talking about gifted leaders or, or giftedness or examples of gifted individuals? And obviously he's the source, he's the giver, and in the context, um, there's some issues that you can deal with there. Um, in your exegetical process, you also will come to some decisions concerning are some of these temporary, that whole issue of cessation of gifts and that sort of thing. But these are exegetical decisions that you'll come to. Some of them, you'll have to go beyond the text, but the text is going to give you a lot of data that's going to help you along the way. Okay. Well, in your diagramming, and the reason I'm going to go beyond this sentence, and let's go to the next part of it, 14 through 16. Beginning in verse 14, the as begins with a capital letter, and I don't show the whole verse there, but it goes through the end of verse 16, so that's a complete sentence. Everything in between, there's no, there's no break, well there's a semicolon after verse 14, but no period, no question mark. So we have another long and involved sentence. And the reason I put it on your, your sheet there is actually in the Greek text, the sentence runs from 11 to 16. The New American Standard breaks it up. So if that's how you break it up, that's fine. But since I know that it goes to verse 16 because of the Greek text, uh, in this example, I'm going to choose to include it just, just by way of example and how it would fit in if you diagrammed it from the Greek text. And by the way, all of the diagramming I do, I do from the Greek text because it's easier than it is in the English. The, the Greek text is more precise in a lot of cases. 
it uh, oftentimes makes it very clear what things modify what things uh, because they're in concord in a lot of cases, whereas in English it's hard, sometimes harder to tell. So all of the diagramming that I do, I do from the, the, the Greek text. So just as an example, but basically if you're going sentence by sentence, you could start this as a new sentence and start a new diagram, but I've shown it as a continuation reflecting the Greek text, and that's why I've done it. Does that make sense? Yes. You can do it either way. And we do the same thing. We try to identify the main clauses and the subject and the verbs of these main clauses and what I've done on the slide there as a result. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, semicolon. So that's probably an independent clause. And in fact, I would say that it is. <clears throat> With the subject we and the verb are. So we have a lot of subject complements here. And then 15, but, we have a contrast, or a contrastive ver- word, anyway, that introduces probably another independent clause. Now, the verb is not speaking the truth, that's a participle. Speaking the truth in love, that's a prepositional phrase, in love. But, you could you could uh, jump to we are, so the independent clause will jump to the subject we, and then are again, in parallel with what we have in verse 14. You might note that parallel. And sometimes on my diagramming sheet, I might circle that and circle this to show that, hey, we have a clear parallel here. We have the identical subject and verb in these two parts here, two parts of the sentence, two independent clauses. We are to grow up in all aspects and into him. And I should have uh, highlighted the who there. Who is the head? Because that's a dependent clause that modifies the him. And we have an appositional phrase, appositional to head, even Christ, comma, from whom the whole body, and then it goes on, and we have another subordinate clause. I didn't copy it just for the sake of time and space there. Okay, so we have two independent clauses in this second sentence, or this continuation. And if you see the whole thing as one sentence, then you're going to have three independent clauses. Okay, and then you're going to have a couple of subordinate clauses in there as well. So we'll do verse 14 first. Now, in the English, we have kind of a connecting word that connects these independent parts as a result. And I think they're related to the gave again here, to the the verb. So I put it underneath there, almost like a subordinate clause. And in the Greek text, it is a subordinate clause, or a, a subordinating idea, at least, that, in, that introduces these two major ideas. Uh, so we have we, the subject, are, 
and it negates it no longer to be something. And the to be, by the way, uh, is an infinitive, and it has a uh, it's a it's a what do you call it a stative verb. It's a stative infinitive, I guess you could say. I don't know if that's the correct way of identifying. Remember, I don't know grammar, but it's an infinitive for sure. But we have a subject complement to the to be children. We are not to be, we're no longer to be children. Then we have two participial phrases. Tossed. Then we have modifiers here and there. Modifying that participle. Then we have a prepositional phrase by waves. Tossed here and and there by waves. We have an and that connects it to the next participle. And notice I've got it in brackets because we have two of them. And carried about. And now we have a series of prepositional phrases. And then you have the same question that we had in verse 12. Are these parallel or are these in sequence or is there another possibility? And I chose to put them somewhat in parallel. By wind, every wind, every wind of doctrine. And then a second thing, not only false doctrine, but trickery of men, a second element, and also a third element by craftiness in, in, in deceitful scheming. So, Ray, you said that uh, we are no longer to be children and we are to grow up. Those are two subordinate clauses because of the, as a result. In the Greek text, yeah. Okay. But the New American Standard makes them independent clauses, yeah. Okay. But I'm showing them as dependent because I'm, I'm kind of combining, reflecting the English and the Greek. Mainly just to show you, um, you know, what you can do here with the diagramming. So that's verse 14. And now we have that parallel clause in the English it's independent in the Greek it's a deep, another dependent clause but instead of this instead of being uh, no longer uh, or no longer being children but instead we are to be certain things positively and then I've got what appears first is the speaking the truth in love. That's a participle. Speaking, I-N-G, in English are usually prepositional words. And then we have another infinitive. Notice the parallels here. To grow up. And then he gives us the areas to grow up in all aspects unto him. Now we have a subordinate clause expanding who the him is. Uh, the who acts as the subject as well as the relative uh, conjunction there, or coordinating conjunction, or not coordinating, uh, subordinating conjunction. Who is, and it's subject complement, the head, even Christ. Now we have a subordinate clause that modifies Christ, so he's expanding Christ in this whole part. And that's the rest of verse 16. I need a reminder. What would you say the two vertical bars are in front of to grow up? 
infinitives. Okay, that's a designation for an infinitive. That's designation for an infinitive. And in the first one, it's like an infinitive phrase or clause, maybe. Okay. Make sense? Yes. This is a good example of where the diagramming uh, kind of gives you additional insight because when you did the uh, struct the, the outline form before, it looked like those three things, the equipment of the saints, the work of service, and building up the body of Christ, those were all on the same level. Yeah. Yeah, you... Professional phrases, so... That That's looked exactly. like they were parallel. Yeah, the advantage of diagramming, and I did have them parallel. Yeah. Uh, the advantage of diagramming is it forces you to make more detailed decisions, and you have to make more detailed decisions concerning every word. So back yeah. on the outline form, could you make those? Yeah, you could. By yeah, you could any one after the other? Yeah, you could indent them. Yeah, you could do that. Okay. okay. In fact, you would want to do that if that was the decision that you were making. Okay. So as written, these look like two different decisions on those th for those three phases. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, we're. I'm not saying any either one is correct. I'm just, I'm just saying these are the decisions that it forces you to make, and it makes you think in terms of possibilities. To be able to identify uh, other possibilities. And once you've done the diagramming and you start reading the commentaries, now you can see, well, oh, okay, I see this commentary goes in this direction. So he sees this relationship of these prepositional phrases rather than the one that I think is the correct one or the one that I came up with. Uh, the, the reading of commentaries now will be extremely more valuable to you, and it's not going to sway you to make the decision that the commentator make. Now, he may be right, and you may change your mind, but at least you're in a position to, to think through, well, maybe he's not right, and sometimes you'll disagree with the commentator. Well, that's Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Let me give you one more. And since you've worked through this one, this one will be a little bit easier for you. So let's take a look at Acts 1, 7 through 8. You've already made observations. And we made the observation that uh, this is a complete sentence. That verse 8 is not the beginning of the sentence, but actually is the continuation of verse 7. So he said to them, and the reason I want to give you this is because it gives you another example of another construction that we haven't encountered in the Ephesians passage. Uh, so we have, he said to them, it is, and this is interesting in that we have a quotation or the content of what, wherever the he is said, and jumping ahead, uh, Jesus is speaking here. That's an interpretive conclusion we come to. So Jesus is speaking, and we have the content of what he said, which in itself has lots of parts 
that we need to kind of sort out as well. So how do you diagram something like this? But let's start, a complete sentence, starting with he, ending with a period at the end of earth, so the end of verse 8. And you've already identified the independent clauses and the subordinate clauses. So he said, first independent clause, and then in the content of what he said, it is, subject and verb of the first or second independent clause. It is not for you to know the times or epochs. And now we have a subordinate clause. And I've got it highlighted in pink there with a subordinating conjunction. And, and by the way, you might just circle these words or highlight them or whatever you want, you know, call attention to them as you're reading them before you even start your diagramming so you kind of have the parts. So it is not for you to know the times or epochs, which, so he's going to modify the epochs, which the Father has fixed. So there's the subject of that dependent clause. Father has fixed is the verb by his own authority, semicolon. So all that kind of goes together. Now we have a but, and then we have another independent clause. You shall receive power. So the but is introducing an independent clause. The you will receive, subject and verb. And now we have the introduction of a subordinate clause. When the Holy Spirit has come. So if it's a subordinate clause, well, upon you, ending with another semicolon. Uh, Holy Spirit, subject, has come, verb. And we have an and, so we have another independent clause that goes with the other independent clause in verse 8, or at least that's the decision we'll make. And by the way, that's a question you want to ask. Does this next independent clause go with you shall receive power, or does it go with it is not for you to know, that independent clause? And if, if, that, if you make that decision, then the diagramming is going to be different. So, let's look at that independent clause. And you shall be, there's the verb. You is the subject, shall be, verb. And then we have a series of geographical locations, or shall be witnesses, both in these geographical locations, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even the most parts of the earth. Okay, so we have one, two, three, four, Independent clauses and two dependent clauses that we'll have to fit in. And we have a couple of other things. This is not for you to know. What is that? What's the to know? Uh, that's an infinitive. Very good. Both of you got it right. So we're going to have an infinitive in there as well. So... We're going to start out, and I know how this is going to be diagrammed, so I'm going to start out at the bottom of the page here. And this is the first independent clause. This is verse 7. Subject is he. The verb is said. And we have a prepositional phrase, to them. And everything that is said is going to act 
like a series of clauses that are like a direct object. In other words, this is how you diagram something when you're essentially quoting what somebody has said in this kind of a sentence. So I'm going to put a little piece of stilts here because everything else, because that's where the quotation marks begin and they'll end at the end of verse 8. Everything else is going to be the content of what he said. Now there's a name for this. I, you know, I don't know grammar, so I can't remember the name of it, but this is how you diagram it at least. In other words, everything is acting like a direct object. It's the content of what he said. So we'll put uh, an independent clause up there. And I know there's a but, so I'm going to have a contrast to it. So I have 7b up there. It is the verb. I mean, the subject is is the verb. And he negates it. Not. It is not for you, prepositional phrase. And now what do I have here? You all said that we have an infinitive here, so the infinitive is now acting like a subject complement. You see how that's working? Yes. So, now he negates it, so it's, it is... It is not for you to know, and we have like an infinitive, I guess it's called a phrase, or because it's not a clause, so it's an infinitive phrase, to know, and we have objects of the knowing. It's not for you to know times or epochs, and now we have a subordinate, subordinate clause, and again, you have to ask the question, what does that subordinate clause modify? Does it modify the is? It's probably too far away from the said, so it probably doesn't modify it. And it seems to modify to know, because not only does it immediately follow, but the kind of the sequence of thought seems to follow that. So it's giving us what we're not to know, or an expansion of what we're not to know, which the father, subordinating conjunction, which, and then the father is the subject. And we have the first article here that we've encountered, and I put the article with the uh, the noun that it goes with. I don't try to separate it out. If you wanted to, you'd put it underneath, kind of like a modifier, but I think it fits better together. Which the father is the subject, has fixed, there's the verb, by authority, and it's just not any authority, it's by his authority, and not just his, but his own authority. Following so far? So I've got an independent clause that starts everything out, and then we have the content of something that is said, and for 7b, Right. Why does, why does which the father not go over where times or epics is? It seems like it modifies times or epics. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a decision to make. Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe it does. 
Yep, that's a very good. That's a very good observation. That's one of the exegetical decisions you might make. Does it modify the knowing idea, or does it modify the the time element aspect? Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Uh, I chose to put it with the knowing. In other words, knowing the things that the Father has fixed, but uh, that's a possibility. Okay. These are the decisions you make. Very good. Very good observation. So that's all of verse 7. And then the but introduces us to verse 8. But you will receive, and now we have an independent clause. We have two things here. You will receive power, and then we have subordinate clause, and then we have an and. So we have another independent clause. You should be, you should be my witnesses. Then we have the geographical locations where. So I'm going to have two parts to it. And we have the beginning of verse 8. But you, again we have the subject, will receive, verb. Now we have a direct object, power. Okay, everybody happy with that? That's the first part of verse 8. And by the way, I will put the verses as they appear. So in my diagramming, I will, and usually I put them in a box so I can, or highlight them in some way so I can find them real easily or quickly just by looking. So we have a contrast with the but, things that they are to know and now or not to know, and then now we have a contrast with things that they are to be concerned about or do here, verse 8. And the will receive, and and again, you make these decisions, what does the subordinate clause modify? And I think it gives the time frame for when they receive, but it could conceivably modify power as well. But I think it fits better with giving the time of the action of the verb. And by the way, in the Greek text, this is an example where oftentimes the Greek text will will be more precise and will identify what it's identifying with because of concord and those sort of things. The English is a little bit more vague in a lot of areas. So now we have a subordinating conjunction that has a subject and a verb, and in this case, the Holy Spirit. And the verb has come, and then we have prepositional praise. So hopefully you can see where we have utilized virtually all of the conventions in just two examples here. And not only that, but we have also laid out all of these parts so that they're easily identifiable and uh, have brought out uh, different possibilities as to where the parts may fit. So then the rest part of verse 8, we have a another independent clause. And you shall be something. That's not an action verb. That's a stative verb. 
So you shall be witnesses. So I have the line slanted. Notice the difference between you shall receive power with a vertical line. That's a direct object marker. As opposed to you shall be something that's subject complement. You shall be witnesses. So I have it a slanted line. Everybody following so far? Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, let me backtrack a little bit before I get to the last part here. Well, let me go ahead and get to the last part, and then I'll backtrack. Uh, they're not just any witnesses. They're my witnesses, and it's capitalized, so I reflect that in the diagramming. And the my refers to the he at the beginning there, verse 7. He's the one that's speaking. And you could debate where the both goes. In English, when we say both, we usually refer to two things. But it appears that it could be referring to three things here. Um, so you might um, debate how you d diagram that. Maybe you want to put the top two together with the both, and then you have a third thing that attached to the top two. I, you know, that's just another option. Uh, I put them all in, in parallel here. Uh, you might even arrange them in some sequential way where it begins in Jerusalem, but because of the and, I think at least grammatically, I think the structure here is more parallel. Uh, the driver is the and. So in Jerusalem and in all, and the all I think modifies both. If you thought the all only modified Judea, then you would put it under Judea. But I think it modifies both, so I put it before in all Judea and Samaria. And since they're put together, I put them together in this way on the diagram. Instead of four things, we have three, and the middle one has two components to it. And then uh, the prepositional phrase, two is a preposition, and the object of the preposition, the part. And then everything else modifies the part, even remotest part of the earth. Everybody happy? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay, very good. I hope you're seeing the advantage. I, I mean, it. you can get overwhelmed with this diagramming and, you know, throw your, you know, your hands up into the air and say, I could never do this. But uh, if you can just break it down part by part, and then start making decisions as to how you lay everything out. You have to have independent clauses together, and everything that goes with that independent clause goes together, including any subordinate clauses that modify. So, for example, in verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. All that goes together. So you just break it into little parts, and it's more manageable rather than overwhelming. And then when you're done, um, you, you've solved the puzzle, basically. 
and you have laid out all of the parts, and now you know how everything relates, and then you can take it to the next stage and begin to come to some interpretive conclusions, and you can do your your synthesis in putting everything back together. Make sense? So the the what I was going to go back to is the the controlling independent clause obviously is the very beginning even though it doesn't seem as important but grammatically what controls everything is that first independent clause he said to them Everything else relates to that subject and that verb, that independent clause. Everything else is the content of what he said. See that? So that's true in general then? Yeah. First independent clause controls. Well, what is true is the independent clause controls everything. And the subject and the verb controls everything in the independent clause. Everything in that independent clause is telling you something about the subject and the verb. That's why it's important to identify the subject and the verb. And here's a vivid example. Uh, we have a subject and a verb. And most of the, the words, even though it's very complex, really, uh, this tells you the content of what he said. And that's the case in general. And you can follow through. But look at the first independent or the second independent clause after this first one. It's a simple independent clause, a simple subject. It is. And we have an infinitive, but it's telling us what the it is is. It is not to know something. And then the not to know something, uh, he tells us... Uh, concerning times and epochs. And he also tells us uh, not to know things that the Father has fixed. And and now you have a dependent clause, so everything tells us a little bit more about that dependent clause. The dependent clause tells us more about the knowing, and the knowing tells us more about the it is. The it is tells us more about what he said. And that's only part of it, because now we have a but. We have a whole series of things that are the alternative to the things that he doesn't want us to to focus in on. So there's a whole set of things he doesn't want us to be concerned about, or to know about, at least for now. But there's a whole area of things, at least two major things, because you have two independent clauses, two things he wants us to focus on or to know about or to follow through on. And that's the concentration that the listeners are to focus their attention on. And one of them is receiving power. Second one is being witnesses. And everything else is telling us about everything else in that Independent clause is telling us about the you, the disciples, and the receiving of power. Gives us the time frame when they will receive the power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And similarly, 
You shall be my witnesses. And in this case, it gives us the locations. See, you've not only broken it down, but in large measure, you've put it together because now you have where all of the parts fit together. So there's two examples. One I gave you a handout on. Now, in that packet with the outline and these examples, I also included a little helpful couple of tables there that kind of identify, that help you kind of sort out uh, different kinds of subordinate clauses and words that introduce them. And I'll let you kind of look that sheet over. Everybody have that sheet there too? Yes. Some subordinate clauses that are more adverbial. In other words, they, they modify verbs. But there are some subordinate clauses that modify nouns. And they can modify a subject. They can modify an object. They can modify an apposition. And some of them, uh, they can be, like, adjectival as well. So this will help you, and some of the, con- the uh, connective words, wor- uh, words are off to the right there. When, after, that's a temporal, adverbial clause. We've seen those, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. After, remember the Acts, uh, what was it, 1-9 passage? We had an after subordinating conjunction. And if you have an after, you can have a before. (laughs) Uh, There are logical adverbial clauses, causal adverbial clauses, purpose clauses, result clauses, conditional clauses with if. There's lots of those in the New Testament. If this, then this. Result, so, so that, hence. You can even include therefore. It's not on the chart there. Causal, because. Starts with a because. And this chart will help you. In other words, what what is he saying here? He, he's giving us a cause of something. And he's, he's doing it by giving me a subordinating clause that gives me a cause. And then the last part... Of the sheet there, this last half of it. Different kinds of connectives, temporal, chronological, relating to time, local, geographical, relating to place or directions, logical connectives, whole series of them. And he gives examples on the right hand side. This comes out of one of the, uh, the course texts. Klein, Bloomberg, and Hubbard, but I thought it would be handy for you to have it. And it's a little handy sometimes in diagramming. And when you're trying to put everything back together to help, you know, what, what is the writer doing here? Well, he's he's giving me a purpose or he's giving me the result of something by using this little connective that introduces this uh, subordinate clause.
Okay. I got through pretty much everything we wanted to cover today. Any questions over any of this? No, it all seems so logical when you're doing it, but um, <laughs> I'm sure when I'm doing it on myself, it'll be I'll have lots of questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would uh, I would encourage you to make a stab at the diagramming if it's just if you're just so new and it's just too overwhelming, you know, don't kill yourself. I I mean, um, early on, I I pretty much knew what my ministry was going to be, you know, by the time I uh, got into the original languages, I knew I was going to be teaching the word and, and I knew what my weaknesses were. I knew that grammar was going to be an obstacle. So uh, I just had to make, I'll have to make, I had to make some uh, decisions in order to be effective and to be able to get into the word Coming from an engineering background, you know, a lot of it, you know, obviously is very different. So early on, I made those decisions to diagram every passage. And obviously, at the very beginning, it was extremely awkward and time consuming and difficult. But you kind of get over a hump after some time. You not only does it become easier, but you, you begin, you know, you, you learn the convention, so you're not going to the sheet again to say, oh, how do you do this? How do you diagram that? Um, and it becomes a lot more um, easily done and not so cumbersome. But, yeah, at the, at the beginning, you're, you'll, you'll feel very awkward, very uh, overwhelmed, actually, with, with trying it, but uh, I assure you, if you give it enough time, you'll get over the hump and and if you do a little thinking ahead of time. In other words, just identify however you want to do it, circle it, underline it, or whatever. Identify main clauses. Just go through the basic analysis first. Make sure you have all of that identified. And once you know that, you know, in this case, in Acts one seven through eight, I've got one, two, three, four. Four independent clauses, and I know the last two go together. I'm not sure how the first two relate, but I know I have four of them. I also know I've got uh, two dependent clauses. One of them seems to go with the first independent. The next one seems to go with the middle one. Um, It'll make your diagramming a lot easier, and if you take it piece by piece, um, it won't be as overwhelming. You look at it now as it's completed, and it 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 looks. In other words, had I showed you this before we got started, you'd be overwhelmed. And probably when you got that sheet that I sent you on the Ephesians passage, you say, "Oh man, what is this? This is crazy. I could never do this." <laughs> but if you take it step by step, clause by clause, and then all the the little pieces will will fit in. All the prepositional phrases will fall into place. All of the infinitives will, you know, be able to sort out. And probably the 
The hardest part on this one is how do you, how do you diagram that to know there, that infinitive? Uh, that one was probably the hardest thing of the whole thing. Most of the others are a little bit more straightforward, but it is not for you to know. How, how does all that fit together? And then everything that follows it. So if you have trouble with the to know part, then you're not going to have uh, an easy way of figuring out which the Father has fixed by his own authority, etc. Okay. Just a brief introduction to next week, and then we'll close in a word of prayer. We're going to take the diagramming, and I'm going to show you from the diagramming, in fact, we'll use these same examples, how you will come up with an outline to or to outline each of the sentences in the paragraphs that you'll be dealing with. So, the grammar is going to dictate, obviously, the diagramming, and the, the grammar is going to dictate your outlining as well. In fact, your outline is going to be a reflection of your diagramming. They're going to go hand in hand. They're not going to be different. So the outline reflects the structure. And what you're doing is now you're just taking those main ideas that you have outlined and or that you've diagrammed and you're putting them in outline form or more of a logical form. And in some ways, your outline is also the structure of the passage. So I'll show you how to do that. And we'll work with paragraphs. And we'll look at each paragraph and how a paragraph gives a main thought or main idea. And we'll try to develop the main points of that paragraph. We'll see that sentences or clauses are the subpoints within that paragraph. And the clauses or phrases are lesser points in that outline. And I'll show you how that all fits together when we come back next week. So that's a good place to stop for today. And Eric, you were going to close for us, right? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you bestow on us every day, Lord. The blessing of life, the blessing of your Son, our Lord and Savior. Blessing of your creation, Lord. Lord, we thank you for um, for making this class available to us. Lord, we thank you for um, Dr. Mondragon and all those at Schaefer that, that work hard to um, teach your word and to teach the teaching of your word. Lord, Lord we ask that um, as we work on our assignments this week that uh, you would grant us uh, wisdom and the ability to um, to uh, outline, diagram our, our passages and to um, get to uh, know your thoughts, Lord, so we would understand 
that you're communicating through us and that it would uh, change our lives and that we'd be able to share this blessing with others, Lord. We um, ask for uh, your mercies on the week ahead, that everyone would uh, be safe and have a fruitful week. Lord, we ask this all in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Okay, in the last two weeks, we've completed probably the most important part parts of the exegetical process. Today, we've just completed probably the most difficult part, particularly if you get into the diagramming part. But it's also, I think, the most fruitful part in the whole exegetical process. Everything else from here on out will be far more easy and uh, we'll be, I think, putting things together in a way that I think will make sense to you. So have a good week, and we'll see you back next week. We're finishing a little early today. Not too bad, though. Thank you.